Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Adam Barnes, and I'm filling in for JB this morning for just for Grow Groups. Uh, today, I want to look at three verses with you from the first chapter of Philippians that may not seem that profound on their face, but when you study them, I think that they help demonstrate Paul's mindset in the middle of what we would uh, we might consider a really difficult or frustrating time or situation. And we're going to see that his mindset manifests itself as faithfulness. And that's why I've named it what I've named it, manifest made faith, or faithfulness made manifest. And that has powerful implications for us. Um, as we study this passage and have some fun thinking about it through a hypothetical scenario that we're going to do here in just a minute, I hope that you consider three questions in addition to the ones that I've listed below. I want you guys, as we look at this, to think about what, it, what does it mean for someone's life to count for Christ? We say that all the time, that we want our lives to count for Christ, but what does that really mean? How does that play out in practical application? What factors help a person make the decision to put their faith into action? That's something we talk about a lot in our Thursday morning men's group. What are the factors? What happens for a person to be able to say, okay, I'm a believer, but now I want to become a disciple. I want my life to count for Christ. What gets people to that point? Three, what would that look like in your life? Or what does that look like? Maybe you're there. What does that look like in your life? Or what would it look in the people's lives around you? Are you to that point? Some of you may be, and that's good. Uh, the Philippians were there too, and Paul still said, and this I pray, that you grow more and more, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, and all discernment, not just so that you'll do the things that are good, but so that you'll do the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And then five, why or why not? Why are you doing it? Because motives matter. We won't see it today, but in the passage right after the ones that we're, that we're going to study, Paul talks about the motives for our service and the motives for our Christian life. And if you haven't, why not? So as we look at this, there's going to be some questions that we're going to consider. I'm not going to go over them right now. If we have time, we might break up into grow groups but if not, we'll go through them together. So I'm going to kind of put the pause button on the questions to consider right now. But let's look at the outline. Uh, section one is really just an introduction that kind of what we're going to talk about through a hypothetical scenario. I want you guys to humor me and have a little fun with me. I want you to actively engage with the material so that you can see the perspective that Paul exhibits here in the first chapter of Philippians. Section two is just a background. It's important to understand the situation that Paul's in, the context of the passage, and how it fits with what we're going to look at today. And then three, four, and five are just verses 12, 13, and 14. We'll see Paul's specific report. We'll see that he's unhindered, even though he's imprisoned. And we'll see what it means to have courage and fear to speak God's word. And then we'll wrap it up with some summary and application. Uh, let's read the verse, and then we'll pray, or the verses. In chapter 1, verse 12 of Philippians, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for this group of faithful believers even despite the circumstances that we're facing right now in the world, 
Uh, They come here to be trained and equipped so that we can be encouraged to take the things that we know from your word and pass them on to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Lord, so we just pray today that uh, you would watch over us, guide us, and protect us, that you would enlighten the scripture as we look at it uh, so that we can make appropriate application in our lives. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you've all heard the phrase, hindsight is 2020. It's normally used to convey uh, information, or it's normally used to convey something based on information that you know from something that you've been through in the past. And you can clearly see what went wrong and what you may have done differently. So let me ask you, have you ever been involved in a situation like that? To where when something was all over, you stepped back and wished that you could go back and change something? Have you ever thought, if I only knew 10 years ago what I knew today, things would be so much better? Things would be working out better? Well, let me ask you this. Let's, let's flip it. Let's reverse it. What if you actually knew the future? What would you do if the 2030 version of yourself came to you and said, the you 10 years from now showed up and told you it's all true and you have nothing to worry about? You have nothing really to worry about. Everything in Scripture pertaining to eternal life, the rapture, the judgment seat of Christ, God's promises, uh, his instructions, his blessings, his warnings, they're all true. It all works out. You might say, okay, yeah, that's good. Thanks, future self. I I knew that. I believed that. I know that I have eternal life based on my faith. And then he says or she says to you, yeah, I know that you know that, but listen up. There's a lot of distractions, encumbrances, roadblocks, all sorts of things like that that are laid ahead over you in the next 10 years. Some of them you're well aware of right now. Some of them you're not, though. But I promise you that you have the capacity to overcome all of them. I know because I'm you. And over the next 10 years, we're going to both intentionally and unintentionally waste a lot of time, effort, energy, and emotion Uh, mental stress, being depressed, assigning blame to people and to God, feeling jealous or apathetic over stuff laid out to either snare you or to try you. And you're going to put a lot more time, effort, energy, emotion, and money into things that are designed to distract you, to tempt you, to addict you, or to numb you into feeling comfortable with your situation apart from God. All that mess is because the inappropriate uh, perspective that you take day after day, or maybe even better stated, it's because of the appropriate perspective that you don't take day after day. It's because you don't consider your identity as a child of God, a person in the spiritual lineage of Jesus Christ, the creator, the provider, the protector, the sustainer, not just of your life, but of all existence. But remember, it doesn't have to be this way. You tell yourself that if you constantly transform your mind, your thoughts, your intentions, your actions, your emotions with God's word and his will, not only is it going to be well with you in this life, but through you, God is going to be glorified in such a way that your rewards in the kingdom will be beyond what you can even comprehend right now. And get ready, because in 10 years from now, that face-to-face meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ is going to occur, and you are going to have a little chat. He's going to reward you in accordance with the legitimate deeds that you've done in this body. And what he says to you and gives you in that moment 
is right now up to you. It's based on your faithfulness to his will. Would that interaction affect your life? Some of you might say, no, my life counts for Christ now. That's good, keep doing it. Some of you might be inspired, encouraged, motivated, or convicted like me. Would you have a peace knowing that even though trials and troubles are ahead of you, that you're going to be okay and that God's purpose is going to be accomplished, hopefully with you and through you, because he doesn't have you equipped with the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he's given you to use in the body so that you can sit on them and watch your life pass you by. Today we're going to look at a message written by Paul, a guy who understood what his purpose and what his mission was and that he was faithful to make his life count for Christ. His entire purpose was to take the gospel message to the Gentiles, but he gets placed under house arrest. These circumstances don't add up. It doesn't make sense based on man's logic that Paul would rejoice and be joyful and say that his circumstances have actually created a more favorable outcome, a more favorable environment for the spread of the gospel. How can he say that? Is it if life gives you lemons and make lemonade type of thing? Or is there more to it? And what about the implications for us? Is it plausible, I mean practically realistic, to be able to rejoice no matter what our circumstances are? Because it sounds really churchy to say, yeah, just be, you know, rejoice, whatever's going on. But we can, and we're going to see how. When something happens in your life that you don't like, that you didn't plan for, that's scary, that you don't think is fair, Do you say, why would I respond to that with joy? Or, as you may have guessed based on our hypothetical scenario, do you realize that it all goes back to our perspective? And whether or not we approach our day-to-day lives based on the truths and promises found in the Word of God and our positional purpose in Christ. Before we get into it, let's take a quick look at the background of what's going on here with Paul and the Philippians, just for context. We see that during Paul's second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit directs him to Philippi. God directly intervened. He took him directly to Philippi on purpose. He took an active role to take Paul and his companions to Philippi and Macedonia. Paul actually wanted to go other places. In Acts, it says that the Holy Spirit forbid him to go certain places. They weren't allowed to speak the word in Asia. And so they thought, okay, let's go north. And the Lord said, no, 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 you're not permitted to go there either. And then finally, Paul gets a vision that sends him to Philippi. And there, he meets Lydia and establishes the first body or helps organize the first body of believers on European soil. That's important because if you were to characterize the Philippians by anything other than joy, it's that they were givers. They helped fund Paul for the rest of his ministry. We're going to see that. Paul shared a special bond in connection with the Philippian church because of their faithful participation in the gospel. And the key there is their faithful participation. And there's application there for us. It is an assumption, their bond. It's not assumption to say that it was special. When I say that it was special, it was special. His connection with them was probably more special than his with any other place. In Philippians 4, Paul tells them for a little while, they were actually the only church giving to him. He says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that after I left you, after the first preaching of the gospel, when I left Thessalonica, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. They were the only people funding his ministry. They were givers because they believed in the mission and the message. They bought into the purpose, no pun intended. They bought in with their words and with their minds. 
or with their actions. There's application there for us. In 2 Corinthians 8, we're actually in Corinthians, and Paul's writing to the Corinthians about how great the Philippians and the Macedonians were. He says that they gave of their own accord based on their ability and even beyond their ability. The Philippians were special. And then right before our passage today, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy, my every prayer for you all. Why? In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. From the outset, the Philippians were faithful. They participated in Paul's ministry. The, the, the word the partition there, or participation there has the idea of fellowship. We're not supposed to do ministry alone. We're not lone rangers in ministry trying to change the world by ourselves. We do it with people. And the Philippians were those people for Paul. They helped fund him, and not just, in mon- not just with money, but with their words and action. The Philippians, of all the people that Paul writes, are probably the ones who are doing it right the most. Here in Philippi, Paul began what would become a long and fruitful relationship with the body of believers. The Philippian church was faithful to provide whenever they had opportunity. Now, he's writing back to them. Approximately 10 years later, after the establishment of the church in Philippi, Paul comes under house arrest. This is different from his second imprisonment in Rome when he's in a dungeon type of cell. But during this, his first imprisonment, he stays in rented quarters. Where do you get the money to rent that, those quarters? Probably from the Philippians. And he's changed, chained to a rotating member of the emperor's praetorian guard, and we're going to cover them in a minute, And while he's chained to him, he's writing epistles. While he's in prison, he writes Colossians, he writes Philippians, he writes Ephesians, and he writes Philemon. And not only that, but every single time that the guard changes, he's got someone to talk to. (laughs) He's got a captive audience that has to listen to him. You think about earlier when he was in Philippi, he actually tells the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now he's got the emperor's personal guard rotating in and out. So now that we know, just a quick summary, now that we know that Paul was taken to Philippi by the direction of the Holy Spirit where he organized the first body of believers in Europe and that they shared a special bond, they faithfully participated, and then 10 years later, they have now sent this provisional gift and probably a letter by a way of a guy named Epaphroditus to Paul in Rome. Paul's going to use this time to write back to them, either because of the message or letter that Epaphroditus delivered, uh, or just because he loves them to death. So let's pick up here in verse 12. He starts his situational report by saying, Now, I want you to know, brother, my circumstances have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Remember, Paul, or Philippians had just sent Epaphroditus with his gift, and in verse 11, Paul's thanking them, or in the first 11 verses, he actually thanks him. He tells him how much he loves him, that he prays for him, that he's confident that the Lord is going to use their work, their actions, and their money uh, for good until the day of Christ. He says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you is going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's saying the Lord's going to use what you're doing and what you've done all the way up until the day that we stand before him. And here we are studying this verse. It's actually still happening. So rather than concentrating on the physical restrictions enforced upon him by imprisonment, Paul focuses his attention on God's faithfulness to bless his ministry. 
He says, now, I want you to know, my circumstances have actually turned out for the greater progress. How easy would it have been for Paul to say, well, God told me to take the message to the Gentiles. He told me to go to the remotest parts of the earth and do it. Now he's got me here. He's got me locked up in this room. I can't go out. I'm not free to move about. That would have been really easy for him to say that. It would have been easy for him to say, I'm stuck here, limited to one room, and chained to these heathens. But instead, Paul recognizes his purpose. He reflects on God's sovereignty. He recalls God's promises. And he remembers what's at the end of the line. Paul's purpose was to take the gospel message to the Gentiles, something he knew immediately after conversion. If you go to Acts 9, 22, and I think 28, all three times Paul recounts his conversion, and he asks two questions. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. Paul says, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? Immediately, Paul had purpose. From the moment of his conversion, he understood what his purpose was because the Lord later revealed to him that you're going to go to the Gentiles. You're going to go to the remotest parts of the earth. You're going to stand before kings and you're going to preach the kingdom of God and tell people how to have eternal life. And he never forgot it. Paul never forgot his purpose. He says, look, if anybody has confidence about what they've done in this body, it's me. I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, I'm found blameless. But whatever, things, but whatever those things were gained to me, I've counted all that as loss for the sake of Christ. He never forgot his purpose. The next, Paul reflected on God's sovereignty. He knew that God works all things according to his the counsel of his will, and that God works all things for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. That's not just Paul, by the way. That's you and I. He didn't see his imprisonment as a detour, but as God's plan. As a matter of fact, now Paul didn't need to be worried about shipwrecks, about running from town to town and getting beaten and chased and stoned everywhere he went. God brought people to him in safety. And not only did he bring people, he was actually having more success. His circumstances actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Based on Paul's imprisonment, we logically expect that his progress would stop or at least be hindered. It only makes logical sense to us that if he stopped from going and preaching, that his productivity would diminish. However, God's logic is not man's logic. Romans says, oh, the depths of the which." Uh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. They're beyond understanding. In Proverbs, he says, don't lean on your own understanding. He says, trust in me with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge me and I'll make your path straight. That's what Paul's doing here. He's acknowledging. He's recalling and remembering. Third, he recalls God's promises. He's already been told that he would go throughout the whole world appearing before kings and he was faithful regardless of his circumstances because he maintained an appropriate perspective. God promises us that he's always going to be with us and that he'll never leave us or forsake us and that no one can snatch us out of his hand. That's supposed to be comforting. Paul knew it. 
And he remains faithful to carry out his purpose to walk worthy of his calling. We've already talked about what he does under house arrest. He makes the most of his time. He's teaching and preaching the Praetorian Guard. He writes epistles. People like Epaphroditus who are coming in and out with stuff, he's talking to them, sending messages throughout the entire known world. Paul realizes and understands that God works all things out. Jesus directly commissioned him to carry out a specific purpose, and Paul does not let his circumstances block or cloud his perspective, regardless of what it means for him. What could happen to Paul, and what eventually does happen to Paul? gets his head cut off for Christ. He's beheaded. He actually, he's actually ready for that now, even though it doesn't happen until at least 10 years after this letter. Paul knows that the fruitfulness of his labor is you and I. It was the Philippian people. He says, to me, to live for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to remain on in this flesh, in this body, it's going to mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in this body is more necessary for your sake. They're his fruitful labor. We are his fruitful labor, so that he could have this message, so that we could grow in grace, in wisdom, and in knowledge, and so that we could perpetuate the message of Jesus Christ. So guess what? If Paul recognizes, reflects, recalls, and remembers, we should do the same thing. If he understood those things, so should we. We recognize what our purpose is in Christ. What is our purpose as a church? To make disciples. What's your purpose? It's the same. You have the same commission. To make disciples. And there's a comfort because he's always with you. Romans 8, 29. It's God's will that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That we would continually and progressively look more and more like Jesus as we live our lives. And that we walk worthy of our calling. We should reflect on God's sovereignty. We know that he works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And we know that he's working all things out for good, even though on the surface they may not seem good. They may not be good, but God's working them out for good. We recall God's promises. He's promised you that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. He says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, if I'm for you, who can be against you? That should all be comforting to us. And then we remember what's at the finish line. I always talk about this because I like to reverse engineer our, our situation and our existence. Someday, every single one of us, if you're looking at me or if you're in this room, we're all going to stand across from Jesus and give an account of ourselves to him for what we've done in this body. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says that each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And it also says that if any man's work remains, he'll receive a reward. Is that talking about eternal life? How do you know? How do you know that's not eternal life? It's perfect. It can't be a reward because rewards you get for doing something. Eternal life's not by, it's not a reward, it's a gift. God's recipe for the spread of the gospel message calls only for the faithfulness of believers to take the message in word and action. He supplies the rest. 
When we stand before him, we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. The emphasis is on faithfulness. Verse 13, he says, Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. A couple of things about this verse jump out. One is the verbiage that Paul uses about his imprisonment. And two, the second is that his imprisonment has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. That's the greater progress. Paul had a stable and appropriate perspective about his circumstances. It was important that the Philippians understood things in the same light as he did, and vis-a-vis that we understand things in the same light that he did. He'd already said, look, things are actually working out better than before, and I'm not a prisoner of the Romans. What does he say here? My imprisonment in Christ. He starts out the letter by saying, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. He's a willing servant of Christ. He says, that I'm not a prisoner of the Romans. I'm actually a prisoner of Christ. It's a play on words to demonstrate that his physical imprisonment is not only okay, but it's beneficial because it aligns with God's will. The progress of the gospel is actually greater because of it. Here he writes that his imprisonment in Christ has become well-known throughout the entire Praetorian Guard. How many people would you guess made up the Praetorian Guard at this time? A few hundred maybe? It's actually 10,000 people. The emperor had about 10,000 personal guards, and they were known as the Praetorian Guard. Paul's a big deal, and so they're chained to him. And they're rotating in and out. And whether or not they're believing, we, you can actually see in Acts uh, 28 that a lot of them hear it and don't believe, but they're talking about it. Some of them do believe. And then, and then he says, and to everyone else. Here in uh, Acts, Luke writes, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And that soldier rotated. And then at the end of the chapter, it says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching what? He wasn't just giving them the good news message of salvation. He was actually telling them about the kingdom of God as well. Same thing we're talking about. Where do you want to be? Jesus is coming back, and where do you want to be? Do you want to be ashamed at his coming, or do you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? He's talking to him about the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That's powerful that even Luke, when he's writing Acts, is saying, yeah, he's chained up. He's confined to a room, but he's actually unhindered. Even Luke knew as he's writing this, the gospel's persisting, and it's actually the greater progress of the gospel's happening because of what's going on. He was unhindered. Some people believed and some others didn't, but it's evident that the message would be heard and discussed, especially when we look at this next verse. Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Think about that for a second. Think about the context of what's happening. Why is Paul in prison? Because he's speaking the word of God. Some people, or excuse me, people during this time were being thrown in prison because they were speaking the word of God. How could these people have courage to speak the word of God without fear? Maybe more convicting, why don't we have the courage to speak the word of God without fear? We're not getting thrown in jail. 
yet. There may be a time. What are we going to do when that happens? As the believing base of people grew, more and more men felt comfortable conversing about Jesus' death and resurrection without fear. They had others to stand with him. So what? We have people to stand with us. I know Brent believes. I know Nathan believes. I know Garrett, Lance, and Ryan, everybody else believes. Why don't I always have courage to speak the word of God without fear then? Why, if I know that there are people with me standing and doing ministry, do I, when I leave these walls or the walls of my home, not feel comfortable to speak the word of God? Why don't you? I can't speak for you directly, but I can speak for me. It's because when things get tough or I get lazy or I get impatient, or I get uncomfortable, I start to compare, or I start to question God, or I don't acknowledge him, I'm not recalling my purpose in Christ. I'm not recognizing God's sovereignty. I'm not reflecting on God's promises, and I'm not remembering what's at the end of the line. So when it comes to whether or not we speak with courage or we speak with fear, we have to know that some are going to respond in faith and courage, and that needs to be us, because we have a clear gospel message. Some respond in rebellion and fear. And fear has a purpose. We shouldn't neglect to let it do its thing when it's appropriate. However, to succumb in such a way that our responsibility as believers is thwarted, that's when it's wrong. God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with me. His rod and his staff comfort us. If he's with us and if he's for us, who can be against us? If he's never going to leave us or forsake us, why doesn't that effectively motivate us? If he's going to be with us until the end of the age, we should take comfort in that and get out of here and go make disciples. It's not just the big things like that, but it's also the little things. I always used to get nervous taking tests and quizzes. I was afraid. In elementary school, all the way through college, I'd get butterflies before I'd take them. But all that changed in my church history class in seminary. At the beginning of the semester, Dr. Nettles walked in. And he told us to always expect a quiz at the beginning of each class, every lecture. So in the next class, we all came in and took our seats, and true to his word, he walked and said, get out your notebooks, and let's have an opportunity for points. I looked at the people next to me, I said, opportunity for points? Does he mean a quiz? They're like, yeah, I think so. For some reason, those words resonated with me, and it changed my perspective about quizzes and tests. I started viewing them as an opportunity to increase my grade. I had always felt like they were a tricky punishment. Tests and quizzes are tricky, and they're punishing me because of what I don't know. I, and then I, just, I changed my perspective, or it changed my perspective, and I started using them as an opportunity to increase my grade. Something as simple as a little phrase shifted my perspective. And it manifested itself over time in the way that I took tests, quizzes, did my homework, studied all of those things, because I wanted the opportunity to get points. I started getting competitive with myself about points and became a good test taker and maybe a better student. All that aside, we know that problems are going to come. 
and that fear can sometimes grip us in the moment. We know that trials, tribulations, temptation, catastrophe, sickness, death, everybody deals with it, not just believers. Unbelievers deal with it too. The difference is we have hope. Unbelievers don't have a chance. They're going to be eternally separated. And we know that we have eternal life, but we also have an opportunity for points. We know that we have a chance to gain rewards based on the deeds that we've done in this body. Look at what the author of Hebrews writes here in chapter 10. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, that's you, we're all enlightened. We know about Jesus' death and resurrection and we know that we're going to stand in front of him. After being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. What's promised? We're promised rewards for the legitimate deeds that, we're done, that are done in this body. That's what it says. Don't throw away your confidence. It has a great rewards. Put your confidence in the promises that God has given you. And then he quotes Isaiah 26, or he pulls from Isaiah 26 in Habakkuk 2, and he says, For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It doesn't please God when we are gripped by fear and we run away from our responsibility. So be of good courage and live by faith. It's not what happens to us in this life that ultimately matters. It's how we respond to it. Paul's thrown in prison and he could have chosen a lot of different ways to respond. He could have given up. He could have abdicated and walked away from his responsibility, but he didn't. He wrote four epistles. He used the opportunity with his captive audience to give the gospel message, and what happened? Actually increased the furtherance of the gospel. So will you respond in faith and courage, or by rebellion and fear? Listen, the truth is that when you filter your perspective with the word of God, your outlook, it affects your outlook and you begin to align with his will. Isn't that what we talk about in Romans 12 all the time? That when you transform your mind or you transform yourselves by the renewing of your mind, that you're going to know what God's will is? This is God's will. God's will for Paul is the same as it is for us. It's to make disciples. The word not only gives you the appropriate perspective, but it manifests itself in your actions, behaviors. It changes the way that you look at things. And when it does, you can rejoice in your circumstances and have peace. You can have the peace of God, just like Paul did, that no matter what, well, hey, to live is Christ and to die is gain. No matter what happens to me, I'm going to live for Christ. My life is going to count for him. I'm not going to be conformed to the world, but I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And here's the deal. Your future self doesn't have to come back from 10 years from now or even 50 years from now or even 10 days from now 
for you to know the future. You know what's going to happen. You know what the encumbrances are. You know what the sin in your life is. You know that Satan has traps designed to ensnare you, to addict you, to make you apathetic where you're at. You don't need somebody to come and tell you that. It's all in the Word of God. Paul sums up the entire book of Philippians in chapter 4 at the end. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. You can only do that with the right perspective. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he says, finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What have we seen in Paul? He says, the things that you've learned, seen, heard and in me, practice them. Here we've seen in Paul that no matter what his circumstances are, he's going to live faithfully for Jesus. We should practice that. That's the sum total of this verse and really of the book. So here's some summary and some application. We see that Paul maintains an appropriate perspective amidst seemingly negative circumstances based on his appropriate perspective. I don't know why that says her. Paul's a dude. He recognizes his purpose in Christ. He reflects on God's sovereignty. He recalls God's promises. And he remembers what's at the end of the line. I love that. I love thinking about what's at the end of the line. Little side story. One of my favorite movies growing up was a World War II movie called Kelly's Heroes. It has Clint Eastwood and uh, Telly Savalas in it. And they just come out of this minefield. Uh, they're supposed they're they're on this gold hunt essentially. Uh, they're 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 on they're on essentially leave while they're waiting for their absent leader. And they just find out there's gold in this town. They're going to go take it and, and steal the gold. And they come to this minefield where it blows up and it kills a guy. And uh, they finally get out of it. And one of the soldiers walks by Clint Eastwood's character and he says, "How'd you talk us into this?" And Clint Eastwood says, "It took about ten seconds to talk you into this." He says, why don't you quit your belly aching? He doesn't say that, but he says, why don't you quit your belly aching and remember what's at the end of the line? That's the same thing for us. That's why Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you're supposed to appear as lights in the world. Sorry. That's us. Quit your belly aching and remember what's at the end of the line. Someday you're going to stand before Jesus and give an account of yourself to him. Paul considers himself to be imprisoned in Christ, not by the Romans. He's in submission to him and his will. I think the opposite's true for us sometimes. I think we make Christ our prisoner, and we say, yeah, when I need you, I'll come to you. Or if something gets bad, I'll pull on that lever. But until then, I'm going to do things my way. And then if I mess up, then maybe I'll come and see you. We imprison Christ instead of becoming a prisoner of Christ. We should live in submission to his will, not for eternal life, but because we know what's at the end of the line.
Early believers had courage to speak the word of God without fear. So should we. We should. When your perspective's right and you're considering what's at the end of the line, it gets a little bit easier. We align, when we align our purpose in life with God and serve with humility and out of love, we can rejoice in whatever circumstances we are.